God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day to know and to serve your Son. Lord, open up our hearts and our minds to your word and instruction. Lift us up, raise us up, hold us up. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, with our gospel text today, there's lots of different directions you can go with it, but I learned that you have to tell people where you're going or else you'll never take them there. But today, our gospel lesson has to do with Christ being encountered by two upstarts, two men kind of like myself, who want to be at his right and left hand, who want the corporate or C-level positions, two men who want to be at the top ranks of the kingdom, two men who want to have perhaps the stoles or the accolades or the medals or the badges or the titles or the business cards, two men who want to make sure that their place in the kingdom is up and near the top. And to ensure that their place is held, they brought along somebody who has a little bit more persuasion, a little more sway with Jesus. These two men have alongside them their mother. Now, I've never done this. Perhaps you have. Never once have I used my mother in a job interview. Never once have I used my mother to move myself up the corporate ladder. Never once has the bishop even spoken to my mother other than a hello, nice to meet you, you have a lovely son. But here, this mother is the bargaining piece by which these two young men think. We're going to be number one and number two, the right hand and the left hand. We're going to be in the seats of authority. Now, some of us might think how presumptuous that they would think that they could have any sway with the Messiah, the King of Heaven. How presumptuous of them to think that they might even deserve to be in thrones at all. Who are these young disciples who think that they're going to rule? Except if you look at the context of the gospel, you'll see that they are simply answering Jesus's request. This request to be number one and number two is the natural response to what Jesus had previously promised them. If you go back just a couple of verses in the previous chapter, Jesus has his disciples before them, And he says that those of you who have followed me, and so James and John would be, of course, in that group of people who have followed him. Those of you who have followed me in the regeneration, meaning in the new world, in the kingdom, in heaven, however these young men at this point were interpreting what regeneration might mean, says in the regeneration, when the son of man is lifted up into glory, you And he's pointing. You can imagine Jesus standing before his disciples. You shall sit in the 12 thrones beside me. And not only will you be exalted and lifted up and be called number one, number two, number three, all the way down to number 12. Not only is this promise made, but you will also judge over the 12 tribes of Israel. And so rather than seeing this as mere presumption, that the two young upstarts go up and say, I want to be number one and I want to be number two. I want to be at your right hand. I want to be at your left hand. See this instead as them volunteering. This is them answering the conscription notice. Lord, if we're going to be on thrones, sign me up. Lord, if this is what you expect of us, I'm ready. So rather than claiming something that wasn't theirs, they're first in line, second in line, to do what the Lord has asked. This is like uh, at home, right? Mom and dad prepare the meal. You eat the meal. And they say, somebody after this meal is going to have to clean up these dishes. Would you consider it presumptuous if your son or your daughter said, I'll do it first and I'll do the dishes? No, 
you would look at them with great pleasure saying, yes, my beloved son volunteers to be number one and number two. You recognize your calling, your purpose, your place in the kingdom. Yet Jesus here gives them a strange and a little bit awkward response. He talks to them about his cup. And this is, of course, one that's been interpreted many ways. But there's a couple of paradigms or a couple of comparisons I want you to keep in your mind, and we'll go through them. But the first one is the comparison of Christ's cup of suffering versus the cup of blessing. Right? We see this throughout the gospel, the idea that St. Paul talks about that the cup that we drink, the cup that we take, is a cup of blessing. And so when we come forward to receive the Holy Eucharist, when we come for communion, when we come to receive God's blessings, when we drink of his cup, which we are told in the Psalms, runneth over, that it refreshes us, that Jesus in his gospels tells us his cup is full of ever-living water, that if you drink of, you'll never die. There is a good, blessed cup that comes from those who follow in Christ. This is one sense in which cup is understood. And you might think this is the cup that Christ is talking about here in this section of the gospel, but it's not. In fact, the cup that we're talking about here is the other type of cup we see throughout the Old Testament. It's the cup of burden, the cup of cursing, what we'll call today the cup of suffering. This cup is more likened to the cup that we see with Jesus in Gethsemane, where Jesus prays to the Father, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But if it be thy will, I will drink. This cup of suffering, this idea that Christ, as the Psalms say, down to the dregs, down to the very bottom of a cup, was drinking in a certain suffering on our behalf. And so when we have the two volunteers show up to be number one, to be number two, to be first in line, to be second in line, to be the prince or vice regent or chairman, whatever it is they are signing up to be, Jesus cautions them saying, are you prepared to drink of this cup of suffering? Now, they say yes. And again, we should be sympathetic towards them. They're not being foolhardy or rash. They're eager, but they're not foolish. They know the Lord is calling them and has prepared for them and has promised them. But in our Lord's dialogue with them, he is also warning them that this cup comes at a cost. Now, a few, uh, a few weeks ago, talking with some Canterbury students at our school about the cost of being a disciple. The cost of being a disciple is submitting yourself into a school of discipline and to a time of commitment. It's not much different than an academic discipline where you have to commit yourself to several years before you're called a bachelor or a master or a doctor. And before you enter into that academic discipline, you have to count the cost. You have to weigh whether or not you'll be able to finish that drink, to suffer through papers and lectures, suffer through labs and purposes. Will you be able to suffer through what it costs to get to the end? Some of us look at the cost and the time and the commitment that comes with academic pursuits and say, maybe it's not worth the cost. Maybe at the other side, the suffering isn't worth the gain. Some of us, when we were young men or young women, looked up at the TV screen and we saw men like Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. We saw great football, basketball, baseball stars, and we thought, when I grow up, I'm going to be just like them. I'm going to be on second base. I'm going to be the best pitcher, or I'm going to be the best fullback, running back. Whatever it is, you had the ambition, the idea, the place 
that you could become something of greatness, which is, of course, what the disciples are promised today. That if you follow in a certain path on the end of this road, at the top of this hill, at the end of the struggle, you will find greatness. Now, Jesus describes it as sitting in one of the 12 thrones, judging over the tribes of Israel. But we understand greatness in many ways that are similar. What does it mean for us to be the king, as we call LeBron James, to sit not in a golden throne, but to hold a shiny trophy, to sit in a throne purchased with a million-dollar contract, to stand in half court with crowds around you saying, your name. We understand what it means to be great in our culture. But if we were to go back to a young LeBron James or a young Michael Jordan and say, in order for you to get to that picture of greatness, in order for you to go there, there's going to be many Saturdays and Sundays where you don't play, you practice. There'll be many rainy days, sore days, difficult days, agony days where you don't play, you practice. There'll be many days you give up summer camp, friends, family, reunions, you give up and you sacrifice because it's time to practice. That the place of greatness is reserved only for those who are willing to suffer day in and day out until they become greatness. And so the Lord, looking to his disciples, sets before them a vision of greatness, of sitting on thrones, and then asks them, are they prepared to drink of the cup? Another way to say this is, Are you prepared to suffer? Now, in the Gospels, their suffering is pretty black and white. James, as we read this morning, as we sing this morning, James was killed, martyred by Herod Agrippa. The idea of it being that the suffering was both physical and quick, that he would die and become a king in the next life. That he would sit on that throne, not in present glory, not rolling over earthly tribes of Israel, but in the next world. But our Lord Jesus, as he prepares his disciples to go out into the world, gives us this word, not that we might seek martyrdom, although many in the early church did. Not that we might seek suffering, because as though the many world religions, Buddhism or Stoicism teach that Somehow suffering is good for you, that suffering is the purpose of pain, or that suffering is inevitable or inescapable. No. The idea is to go and to drink the cup of suffering is to go through the trials, go through the danger, go through the difficulties, go through the hardships, go through the adversity, go through the hours, go through it that you might become, at the very end, what it makes you into. Not that suffering is somehow some magical thing, but that suffering itself is what transforms young, eager men who want to be at his right hand to glorious crowned martyrs around the throne of glory. Now, a great picture of the great throne room is, of course, in the Chronicles of Narnia. We see Ker Paravel with Pavenzi's children promised their thrones to rule over Narnia. But through the process of these novels, through these stories, through their adventures, they fight and find much adversity, much suffering, much hardship, many difficulties, travails. They climb, they fight, they have to earn their seat at Care Paravel. 
Yet we know from the very beginning, the prophecy was spoken. It was relayed by even a beaver. It was spoken through Aslan that these young men and these young women, the daughters of Adam and the daughters of Eve, shall sit in the thrones. It's as our Lord said, it's not up for me to decide who sits at the right or the left hand. But the Father has prepared for those who shall sit at my right and at my left. And so it comes down to a question of suffering towards what? Suffering for what purpose? Suffering at what cost? Suffering to what gain? Suffering for who? Now, a friend of mine talks about the idea of martyrdom in terms that are easy for us to understand. Martyrdom is not just taking the sword upon your neck. Martyrdom is not just death. Martyrdom, of course, in the traditional sense is falling under the Roman sword, falling under the pagan armies, dying and being killed by burning or being boiled. But martyrdom is going where you most are afraid. Martyrdom is running towards the roar, as our early church fathers said. And so my challenge this morning is to hear the Lord's cup as a challenge towards suffering. A challenge towards who is it that you are attempting to become. Now, one way to discern or discover what it is that we are to become is to imagine what it is that we might be willing to die for. Now, many parents will say, of course, my children are something I would stand in front of a plane, a train, a car, in front of a blade, in front of a gun for. My children, I would gladly stand in front of them. But are there ideas, institutions, people, places, churches that you are willing to do the same for? This is what our Lord is asking these young men. You know that the calling of the kingdom is one that it will cost your life. But are you prepared to drink the cup? Do you truly believe in what you are standing for? When the time comes and you are halfway through that poisonous chalice that will destroy who you are, and transform you into someone else, will you continue to drink? Do you so believe in the institution of Christ's church that you would die for her beauty and holiness, for her pureness and her doctrine, for the beauty of her worship? Do you so stand for the institution of the family that you would die that her concepts of man and woman would not be defiled? Do you so stand for the institution of Christ in culture that you will not be allowed to be defiled by what's in the media or in our politics. Are you prepared to drink the cup, we might ask. Now, I want to end today by giving you some inspiration for where the power to overcome suffering is. Where is it that we draw from that we might overcome suffering in the meantime? What is the medium or the means by which we can overcome suffering? And again, it's in the Gospel of Matthew, in the discussion of our Lord's idea of power and authority. Now, the Great Commission is often truncated with the introduction to the Great Commission cut off. The idea behind Christ's death and suffering is that his suffering actually earned something. His suffering, his drinking of the cup, actually transformed not only his body into a perfect and received sacrifice, but it transformed also the entirety of the world. So much that when Christ 
announces the power of his kingdom invading this world, of his disciples being set up as kings over this world, of the fulfillment of the prophecy that the disciples shall now rule over the kings and tribes of Israel, Jesus begins with a very important phrase. All power in heaven and earth. This is, of course, what's happened through the idea of the drinking of the cup. What happened at Gethsemane, the bloody sweat and tears, was not just an emotional fight against not wanting to die or not wanting to be crucified or not wanting to endure pain, but rather the idea of Christ transforming the nature of power in this world and in the next. That Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was about the transfer of power from the powers of this world to Christ himself. From the authority over Caesar, the authority over the nations, the authority of all of those who stood before Christ and crucified him, through his death there is a dramatic and complete and ultimate and perfect transfer of power so much that the entire cosmos is flipped over so that now Christ, standing before his disciples, can say, all power, and as we say, all means all means all, all power has been given unto me not just in the next world, where the martyrs go, not just in heaven, but also in earth. Our Lord calls us to drink the cup, calls us to count the cost, calls us to acknowledge his role and reign here in earth. And he calls us to do it through suffering, through hardship, through our human endeavors, Though we can never earn what the cup gives us through our merit or work, the Lord calls us to suffer and to be transformed. Now in closing, as a last thought here, think of what Jesus promised his throne would be. Jesus didn't promise his throne would be in some far away country. Just as in Narnia, the throne isn't in earth. The throne is in the center And all revolves around him. The throne is here as we bow down before his altar. And so though you might be going through your various trials, sickness, adversity, poverty, there might not be enough bank for the month, might not be enough checking account for the bills, there might not be enough. Maybe there's too many bills, not enough dollars. I know our school struggles this time of year, thinking how we can get those last few students to make sure we can pay our teachers. Maybe your business is doing the same. How am I going to close those last few accounts? How am I going to suffer through another lean year? How am I going to make it? Maybe it's physical. Lord, you've given me this body and it's broken. Sometimes it was my fault. Sometimes it wasn't. Lord, how am I going to suffer through this? Or my favorite. Lord, you've given me these four children. And every day I suffer. (laughs) Or I'm sure my wife's prayer. Lord, you've given me this husband. And every day I suffer. But whatever the circumstances are. Whatever cup the Lord has put before you to drink. Hopefully. We can look at the cup and see beyond that difficult swallow. Right? Today may be difficult. This month, this season, this year, this might be the most difficult one. 
This might be the one that you feel is going to destroy you, financially ruin you. Health-wise, maybe never recover. Children, maybe never come back. Church, maybe never grow. Maybe this is the year of suffering. But no matter how bad it gets, the Lord, with his cup, swallowed down to the dregs every bit of bitterness with you, for you, that he might be in you, so that on the other side, because you are going to make it through, the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, for I am with you even until the end. So you're not alone, but you are suffering. So do as these disciples were told to do, to look beyond the cup, to imagine those thrones, right? How the Lord is going to exalt you, maybe in this life, maybe in the next, maybe in this season, maybe in the next, but he will be faithful to his promises And he will tell his people, sit thou at my right hand. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the challenges you put before us. We thank you for the adversity and how it transforms us. Lord, we thank you that you have called us to greater things, that you have not left us in our uncertainty and our simpleness, but have brought us towards you. A call towards greatness, a call towards glory, a call towards purpose through pain and suffering. And Lord, we await for the day when you wipe away all of our tears, where there is no crying or pain. And as we gaze upon your glory, may we feel your presence now and forever. And now go in peace. May God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost bless you and keep you this day and forever. Amen. Amen. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive.